Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 443 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I'm very excited about today's guest. We have Aaron Meyer, who wrote a fantastic book with Netflix CEO Reed Hastings. And uh, well, it's about no rules, rules, Netflix and the culture of reinvention. This will be fascinating for anybody who leads anything and are trying to motivate teams. If that is you, you're going to love this one. And today's episode is brought to you by World Vision and Remodel Health. You can sign up for World Vision's free web series, Right Side Up Soul Care, with Danielle Strickland at worldvision.org slash carry. And at Remodel Health, you can get some significant savings by going to remodelhealth.com slash analysis. Use the code carry 50 carry 50 for 50% off. Well, Erin Meyer has studied cultures around the world and corporate cultures throughout her career. And uh, she connected, we'll tell the story in this episode, with Reed Hastings of Netflix. He actually reached out to her after reading her book, after deciding that Netflix should go global. And they ended up writing this book on the culture at Netflix. Now, you probably, if, if you've been around the internet for a while, have seen the slide deck, which has been viewed a ridiculous amount of times that Reed Hastings put together on the culture at Netflix uh, famously, no limits on vacation, um, no expense approval needed, all that kind of stuff that really created a buzz. So they put a book together. I listened to the audio version of this book back in the spring for the first time, came out last year. I was fascinated by it. Reached out to Erin to see if she could come on the podcast. She said yes. And now we're studying this as a team and everything. So I think you're going to be fascinated, whether you're an employee or an employer. This is really good. Aaron is the co-author, along with Reed Hastings, of the Financial Times-nominated Best Business Book of 2020, New York Times bestselling book, No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. She's also the author of The Culture Map and a professor at Inseed in Paris. Her work has appeared in the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, and Forbes.com. In 2019, Aaron was selected by the Thinkers 50 as one of the 50 most influential business thinkers in the world. And we talk about everything. Why adequate performance gets you a generous severance package. What talent density means. And I am very fascinated in that as we move forward here. And how an unlimited vacation policy actually works. Thanks to our partners for this podcast, uh, World Vision really has your back. And we know this has been a very difficult time for a lot of leaders. And if your soul needs some care, and when does it not need care, you should join Danielle Strickland and World Vision for a brand new series called Right Side Up Soul Care. It's free. And Danielle and leaders in the global church will share how they have learned to practice their faith and feed their soul through difficult circumstances. So, Sign up today at worldvision.org forward slash carry. That's worldvision.org forward slash C-A-R-E-Y. And uh, what are you doing about healthcare for 2022? You're probably putting together your budget. So whether you are a not-for-profit, whether you're a church, whether, uh, well, whatever you've got going on, check out what they have at Remodel Health. So to date, customers of this podcast have saved more than $2.1 million on healthcare premiums. You know how expensive it can be. What if you could get a cheaper plan with better benefits for your team? 
So if you want to figure out how that's going to work for you, Remodel Health has an exclusive health benefits analysis program. It provides you with a custom comprehensive evaluation of your organization so you can experience better benefits and bigger savings through Remodel Health. Head on over to remodelhealth.com forward slash analysis. Get your analysis and use the code CAREY50, that's C-A-R-E-Y 5-0, for 50% off. Also have a Ask Me Anything About Productivity segment. We're going to talk about Ian. He is young, he's getting married, and he's overwhelmed. What do you do about that? That's celebrating the launch of my book, At Your Best, which just released a couple days ago. And hey, just so you know, if you're listening to this, if you haven't signed up yet, you can go to atyourbesttoday.com, get the masterclass video companion to my brand new book for free, but that is going away within hours of launching this podcast. So if you're listening within the first day or two, uh, head on over, you can get it for free. Otherwise, well, hey, thanks to everybody who got in early. And meanwhile, check out my brand new book, At Your Best. It's all about getting time, energy, and priorities working in your favor. We'll do an Ask Me Anything About Productivity toward the end of this podcast. In the meantime, let's jump into a fascinating dialogue with Aaron Meyer. Aaron, welcome to the podcast. So nice to be here with you, Carrie. Yeah, I, I read your book and it was just fascinating. And I, I Googled you and found you and you graciously agreed to come on the uh, show, which I so appreciate. So you've had a whole career studying culture, culture mapping, and you did a lot of like national cultures, which is really cool, right? Like if you're going to Japan, how does that culture behave? If you're going to Canada, you even got one on Canada, which is interesting. I was tempted to to buy it just to see how weird we are. But uh, anyway, um, but then you wrote a book with Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, on Netflix's culture. So let's start here. How did you and Reed meet? Yeah, so actually, that's quite an interesting story. So my first book, as you said, is The Culture Map. It's all about national cultural differences. And that book came out in 2014. And when it came out, it was kind of like a slow starter. I mean, late, eventually, yeah. people started reading it, but not right at the beginning. So because of that, perhaps I was quite surprised when one morning I, I woke up and I, I picked up my phone. I know you're not supposed to do that, but I picked up my phone. I checked my email first thing. And I remember there was this email in my inbox and the subject line said Peace Corps. And when I, I read it, it said, hi, Aaron, um, I've just read your book. I was in the Peace Corps like you were near where you were. I'm trying to have everyone read the book uh, in my organization. My name is Reed, and I'm the CEO of Netflix. And I remember I sat up really straight when I got to the end of the email. <laughs> <laughs> um, so in any case, that that's how I met Reed, this kind of like cold email out of nowhere. And I started working with Netflix as, on their international expansion. And then I was just so interested in this just crazy and, and provocatively strange corporate culture that they had at Netflix that I guess I just kept at him until he agreed to work on a book with me on it. That's fantastic. What struck you as weird when you first started working with Netflix? Yeah, well, so like many of your listeners, I first came across the the Netflix culture even before Reed had contacted me when I when I read the Netflix culture deck, which is this mm -hmm. set of slides that's been read like 20 million times. And yeah. if you've seen that, um, there are some things in it that I found quite startling. So for example, one of the slides says at Netflix, adequate performance gets a generous severance. And when I saw that slide, <laughs> 
it really it really struck me because we'd been spending so much time at INSEAD, at, at the business school that I teach at. Uh-huh. We'd been spending so much time researching and talking about the idea of psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And here was an organization that wasn't talking about that. Instead, they were saying, you know, if, you're, if your employees don't perform at the highest level, you know, go ahead and kick them out. Right? Yeah. And there were other things in there, like there was a slide that said um, at Netflix, our vacation policy is take some. And uh, something about their their, um, their expense policy is act in Netflix's best interest. And I thought those ideas were interesting, but I I just couldn't figure out how a real company could actually operate uh, under those guidelines. So, yeah, so those are some of the strange and provocative things that I came across. And I guess many of your listeners may have heard about also. Yeah, I had heard about the no vacation policy or take as much as you want or, you know, we'll, we'll drill down on that because I think that's sort of the hook that gets everyone. It's like, wait, my team can take as many vacation days or weeks as they want. Are you kidding me? Like, aren't people going to go crazy? Is this going to be like spring break and they'll never come back? So we'll, we'll get to that. But you know what? You know what's fun? You mentioned psychological safety. So Amy Edmondson has been a guest on this podcast and we talked for an hour and a bit all about psychological safety. And one of the fun things about doing this show is, um, you know, pretty open-minded. Not all my guests agree with each other because, you know, we are trying to create psychological safety, but we're going to talk about radical candor. We're going to talk about all these things that Netflix does. And so you were you were just shocked by that, right? By this idea that, um, yeah, people, people could just say what they wanted. Um, adic- yeah, say that principle again. I want to go there because adequate performance gets you a generous severance package. That's right. I mean, that's, I think, the most provocative statement that's, that's yeah. in the book. And I have to say that although I was taken aback by it, I also... I loved something about it. And what I loved was the honesty. I'm so used to looking at these um, organizations who who show me what their culture is about. I put it in quotes, about, uh-huh. right? Uh, and they're, they're taught, oh, we're all about integrity and respect. But of course, what they're saying is not what's actually happening in the organization. And here was a company who was actually not just speaking in, let's say, say kind of like fluffy overall positive words, but were really daring to say, you know, these are are the dilemmas that our employees are facing on a daily basis. And you know what? When you come across a tough dilemma, like you can say, here we value security or here we value talent density or high performance. You know, remember here we value high performance even over security, right? Mm. So that was a company that was really daring to make a choice. And it's been one of my like favorite learnings from this as I'm working with other organizations, dare to make a choice. Right. Look at the tough d- dilemmas and tell your workforce which way to which way to move. Don't just don't just soften around with the respect. No organization would say they value disrespect, right? So <laughs> yeah. dare to go a little bit further. <laughs> so we're going to get into the cultural values. We'll spend the bulk of our our time together on that today. But for people who are listening, I would encourage you and please correct me if I'm wrong, Aaron. Listen to the entire thing and the sequence. You say several times in the book with Reed, don't just, you know, listen to half listen to the podcast, show up tomorrow and go, hey guys, there's no limits on vacation and you're going to have an amazing culture because it doesn't work that way. Can you explain how these are either stacked or sequential or 
pieces of a puzzle that has to fit together to be able to work? Yeah. And I think in order to start that, I actually have to tell a story. Yeah, please so do. So the first time that I interviewed Reed, he told me about his first company. So Reed Hastings, right? The founder and CEO of Netflix, who I wrote this book with, um, his first company was an organization called Pure Software. And when he opened up PureSoft, at the beginning, it was just a, a small group of passionate people who were operating, let's say, kind of fast and loose. And what I mean by that was that they had no like bureaucracy or procedures or rules that were telling them what they could and couldn't do, right? They were just using their, their best judgment to make decisions for the good of the company. But then the organization started to grow, right? It grew to a couple of dozen people and a couple hundred people, eventually a couple thousand people. And as it grew, some people did stupid stuff. And some people took advantage of the, of the freedom that had been given to them. Like there was this story about this guy, Jim, and he used to fly every week from San Francisco to LA. And because there was no travel policy, he started flying first class. Right. Mm. And there was this woman named Charlotte and she had this big dog. And because there were no rules telling her she couldn't, she started bringing the dog to work every day. Right. right. One day that dog chewed a big hole in the conference room carpet. So Reed responded by doing what most what most chairmen or organizations do in these moments of chaos, which is that he put in rules and policies and procedures telling people what they could and couldn't do, right? Um, but then something else happened as those, those control processes started to take root in the organization. And what happened was two things. First, that the, the most creative, mavericky employees, they started to leave the company hmm. because they wanted to work at a place that they could run free, right? And yeah. as Reed sometimes says, he realized that if you dummy-proof the system, only dummies want to work there. <laughs> and the other thing that happened was that the people who were really good at following the rules and processes were promoted into senior management positions. But these weren't the most flexible or innovative people in the company. And the company stopped innovating. And then when the, the, the um, environment shifted, the organization was unable to shift with the change in environment. And he had to sell the company. So his, uh, his big learning from that was freedom, employee freedom breeds innovation, right? And process kills flexibility. And those were his two kind of like overriding ideas as he opened up Netflix. But I didn't answer your question. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a great question. Um, and, and I want to drill down on that before we get yeah. to the original question. Some CEOs love process. A lot of entrepreneurs don't. And so we have been talking, we're a small company, we're like eight people. And I was getting just some internal stuff. You know, my team going, we really need an HR handbook here. And uh, we're onboarding new people on a semi-regular basis. And like, it's really hard to onboard people. And I mean, we're not even talking 80 or 8,000. I mean, it's just eight, right? But you got to replicate yourself, particularly in a remote organization like we have. And my joke was, well, you, you can write an employee handbook as long as it's no more than five pages and has pictures. All right. So I don't want a whole bunch of rules. I just don't want a whole bunch of rules. And I had heard about your book. It came out. When did um, No Rules Rules come out? Was that 2019? Uh, September 2020. Yeah. Oh, it was 2020. Okay. Yeah. So I'd heard about it, heard the buzz about the book. And then uh, maybe in the early summer of 2021, I downloaded the audiobook, started listening to it. And I went, 
This is what has been in my heart, not nearly as brilliantly or well articulated, but this has, this is the siren song of like what I want corporate culture to be like, because it's not about this sort of bohemian, do what you want when you want. You get like talent density and high performing teams and freedom and responsibility and autonomy and all of those things together. Is that something that Reed always craved? Because you mentioned he started with no rules and then it kind of went very bad. He became this bureaucracy, which I think a lot of entrepreneurs just dread. And he was very open in the book about just, yeah, how that one really didn't work out. So he had a chance to do it again with Netflix, right? Yeah, well, I think that he is like many, many entrepreneurs and people who start organizations, which is both they love working in a place that is buzzing with creativity, but Mm. like the rest of us, he was under the spell of the industrial era. (laughs) And I think, you know, my biggest kind of overarching lesson from all of this was to just start to recognize how the vast majority of organizations today are still, you know, obsessed with this this focus on error prevention and Mm. replicability, which is an industrial era hangover. And of course, I mean, the industrial era powered our economy for for hundreds of years, right? So of course, we learned all of these methods for maximizing efficiency, reducing error as much as we could. And of course, you know, we still do need those things to some degree. If you are running a manufacturing plant or you're working in a safety critical environment, by all means, follow the methods of the industrial era. Right. Yeah. If you're making pharmaceuticals, you probably want some error prevention, right? (laughs) That's right. Oh, we hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But I think we all can see that in a vast, in a growing number of teams and organizations today, the biggest risk is no longer making a mistake. The biggest risk is not being innovative enough, not being fresh thinking so that we become irrelevant, right? And that's why we really need to even fight off, I think, these these tendencies that are in us, which is when someone makes a mistake, we put a process in place to make sure it doesn't happen again, right? Mm -hmm. And instead say, okay, you know, one mistake happened, let's deal with that mistake, but not take away the freedom of the rest of the workforce at the same time. Has the culture been key to scale for Netflix? Because they brought you in a time, they were an American company, and then they picked a couple of countries. I think Canada was early on the list. But then all of a sudden, they went global. So they brought you in around that. Can you talk about how important culture has been to scale for them? And then with your culture mapping background, with all these global cultures, right? You got to then figure out, well, how do you be Netflix in Japan? How do you be... Netflix in Indonesia, in Africa, in Europe, right? Where the languages are different and the practices are different. So um, how does culture impact scalability? Yeah, well, I think, of course, when you um, when you know all of your employees' names, it's mm. still pretty easy to have a culture that's flexible and where your employees have freedom because you can kind of keep an eye on everything, right? right? But once you get to the to the level that you don't you don't know all of your employees anymore, that's when our our kind of man our let's say human instinct uh, kicks in for the leader mm. to want to want to put in more controls, right? You feel uncomfortable. You don't want things to happen if you if you don't have your hands like controlling those things. But we really do, I believe, at that moment, if we want innovation, we need to think, okay, I have to just fight against the the process, the process, uh, um, the the goals, the 
the drive for process that's in me <laughs> and think instead about ways to give my employees more higher levels of freedom. And I think we should, Carrie, talk a little bit later in the, the podcast about uh, this strange cu- culture at Netflix and what happened when they tried to take it into other countries, because that is okay. also another story. But we probably need to look at the principles first. Yeah, we'll look at the principles. And this is good because we do have, you know, the majority of people who listen to this statistically would be people who run small organizations. But we also have some very, very large, like (laughs) leaders who lead some very large causes, large companies, sports teams, uh, and many who have international distribution as well. So I think this is going to be helpful. But basically, this is a sequence. So I'm just saying, don't pick and choose and say, oh, we're going to have no expense policy uh, why Why is that a trap? Why is that a danger? Yeah, why does this need right. to go together? Yeah, thank you. So that was the question you asked me so long yeah, ago yeah. that I didn't get to, but let me try to do it now. So, um, so okay, so when Reed opened up Netflix, he had this goal of of creating this um, this free work environment, an environment where people were not, you know, run by management controls. But he also was concerned. He was concerned that at some point, if he didn't put in control mechanisms, that the organization was likely to descend into chaos, right? right. Um, so he thought a lot about it, and he came up with what I'll call the Netflix experiment. And that experiment had had three parts to it. So the first was, okay, in most organizations, most of the, the processes and rules that we put, put in place are there in order to deal with the less amazing employees, right? Kind of the medium ones, right? <laughs> Our top performers, they don't really need to be controlled, right? Mm. So what if I were going to try to create an organization that was made up only of top performers. And you brought up the word talent density earlier. I mean, of course, I know as your as your listeners hear this, they think, well, that's fine for Netflix. They have a lot of money, right? Uh, but at that time, that wasn't the case. So the, the choice that he made was to hire a lot less people, but to pay them more, right? And that's where you get the talent density. Less employees, but but better employees, right? And the thought was if I have if I have less employees but better employees, then I can give them a lot more freedom. But I might still have some employees who really try to take advantage of the freedom that I'm giving them. Even if they're really high performing, they might not be honest, right? Right. so what if I then try to create an environment where people, all my employees are giving one another a lot of really candid, open feedback on an ongoing basis? And that way, when Jim tries to fly first class, you know, Carrie will say, hey, Jim, I don't think that's a good use of our money, yeah. right? And we'll become accountable to one another. And then if we had that high talent density and we had that culture of of candid feedback, then perhaps we could have an organization where we really had very low levels of of rules and process controlling our employees' behavior. And that's where we'll get all of that innovation and flexibility going. And that's why we have to do it in that order, Carrie. (laughs) Because if we start talking about the freedom... But you don't have the top performers or the candor. Well, things probably aren't going to go very well. Right? No, that's so helpful. And I would encourage people to get the book. It is a fantastic book. And the audiobook was great. But uh, the way you lay it out, I've also got the uh, hard copy the, of the book. The way you lay it out makes it really easy to follow along. There are charts and graphs. It's just beautifully laid out. So it's a, 
it's a fairly it's a it's a thick book, but it's a fairly easy read that way. So I would encourage you, you know, be careful when you try this at home. Um, do a little more homework, but you're going to get the overview in this interview, and it is fascinating because so much of it, as you've hint, hinted, Aaron, is counterintuitive. So let's start with talent density. Let's start with people. Um, talk about the culture of getting the very top talent, paying them well, adequate performance, gets you a generous severance package. Those principles that really did. I mean, I remember listening to the audiobook. I think I was washing my car when I heard about adequate performance gets you a generous severance package. And I stopped what I was doing and I'm like, holy crap. And there was a whole lot of other ideas in there, like even how low performers bring the entire team down and how one, you know, they use a lot of engineers and engineers are expensive, but one excellent engineer is better than what was it, 10 or 100 average engineers. Like there's so much in there. So let's start to unpack it just so that people can understand. Because I don't think there's a single person who leads an organization, leads a team or started something that doesn't want high quality talent and want talent density. We all want it, but this is a very unique path to it. So can you start unpacking that? Yeah. And I'll start with the le- with the least provocative. Okay. Okay. So least great. Great. We'll work our way up. We'll work our way up. All right. Okay. <laughs> so the least provocative is the part that you said a moment ago about what, what they call the rock star principle. And if you have any software engineers who are listeners, perhaps they are familiar with this. I guess most software engineers know about it, but I didn't. Uh, so the rock star principle is something that is known in the software business. And it, basically it's based on this research that was conducted uh, where um, engineers were given a task and asked to complete it in a certain amount of time, and they all at least were adequate engineers. Right. And what they showed in that research was that the top of those engineers uh, performed at a, a, a 10 or more times better than the than another medium or adequate one. So what came out of that was just simply, therefore, if you are running an organization of engineers, you have a choice, right? Mm-hmm. Either you can hire 10 kind of adequate engineers or you can hire one rock star, right? And you can pay that person as much as 10 times as what you would pay the others, right? So that's that's where that whole idea came from. That was known in the software industry. Re- Reed's innovation was taking that and saying that that should apply to any creative role, not to an operational role where we're scooping ice cream, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But any creative role where I'm, you know, I'm working with someone, I'm trying to get them to, co- you know, come up with brilliant ideas or to to imagine a better way of doing things, you know, that that the top performer can deliver at least ta- at 10 times, maybe even 100 times more than an adequate one would. So so that's that's the first one. And I think that one's not very provocative, but perhaps useful for us to think about as we're as we're getting ready to hire people and thinking about how to use our money. I think we all know that intuitively. There's someone we've worked with, someone we hired, or someone that's on our team now that we're like, wow, like if they left today, I'd be replacing them with three people, five people, or I don't even know. There's so much, they just produce, they get it done. They they push, push me on ideas. Like they're just so great. And yet the math associated with it, I have a son who's an engineer, but I didn't know that principle that that's actually quantifiable uh, 10X or more is what a rock star performer will bring to the team over what an 
an average or a good performer will bring to the team. Because you think it's double, right? But it's actually exponential. That's right. And that's why it's actually so interesting that you said it that way, because that's why, I mean, then the question is, okay, well, should I hire 10 or should I hire one, right? Mm. Um, but if, of course, we're going for this kind of um, innovative environment, we want to we hire that one rock star because we can offer more freedom, but also because of something that you said a few minutes ago, which is performance is contagious, Yes. And I think I'll, um, I think before I get into that, I'll just give the, I'll kind of put your listeners in situation, right? Okay, <laughs> sure. Okay, so like imagine that you are, um, that you are leading a team of, of eight marketing managers. And yep. when you opened up that team, when you started that team a year ago, you were really focused on developing a high performing team. So you used the rock star principle to get, you know, to get the best, to hire less and pay them more. And then after you'd found who you thought would really be the best people, you invested a lot of time in in coaching them and and preparing them, giving them a lot of feedback. And now a year in, 7 of your 8 employees are amazing. Right. Okay. So these seven, they are exactly who you hoped they would turn into. They are rock stars. Right. Okay. So these people, you know, you think every day, oh, thankfully, thankfully I have her on the team. Right. Yeah. And then, and then there's Fritz. Okay. <laughs> Fritz okay, is so, a nice person, right? Fritz is nice. <laughs> Fritz is a nice guy. You know what, Carrie? Fritz is a nice guy. He's a sweet person and he works hard. Okay, so yeah. that's the thing about Fritz. Uh, but Fritz is not a high performer. Uh, now, Fritz is not a low performer. I mean, he's not a hor- he's not a horrible performer. If he would, you would have gotten rid of If he was, you would have gotten rid of him. He's just kind of medium. And the thing is, you've given him a lot of feedback and a lot of coaching. And you really see now he's never going to turn into that high performer you thought he would be when you hired him. So the question for your audience is, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do about Fritz? Are you going to keep Fritz on the team? Or are you going to find, you know, a, a way to move Fritz on to his next job? Because there's not, okay, I want to I just pause for a moment because we have a lot of not-for-profit and church leaders listening as well as a lot of for-profit and business leaders listening. Just a little pet peeve here, Aaron. Yeah. Church leaders are notorious for hiring out of charity. In other words, Fritz is a really nice person, can't find a job somewhere else. So we keep low performers on. And what you're saying is, no, Fritz is actually good at his job. Am I right to say there's nothing wrong with Fritz? He's, he's just- not good at his job. He's just medium, Carrie. Yeah, yes, he's, he's okay. He gets he's some fine. stuff done. He's okay. He's, he's fine. He's adequate. <laughs> Which most people would say, well, then you have to keep them on, right? And Netflix says, no, you don't. So I just wanted to underscore that. And let's continue with Fritz, because this is so counterintuitive to so many listeners. And it is the problem in so many organizations. Yeah. And so I've asked this question to lots of people, right? And I would say about, uh, well, at least 60% say, I will keep Fritz on the team, you know? Mm -hmm. And they'll say things like, you know, well, if I have seven high-performing employees, that's enough, right? (laughs) Um, And and of course, I want to show my employees that I'm loyal to them so that they will be loyal to me. Right. Um, But actually what we've seen through a good deal of research is that if you if you let one performer on your team who's kind of like low or middle, that that person will pull down the performance of the rest of the team. So there's this one 
one piece of research that was conducted by a colleague of mine at another business school, Phil, uh, William Phelps was his name. Mm. And uh, William uh, did this, this project where he invited four MBA students into a lab at a time. And he gave them a 45-minute task, and he rewarded them financially based on how well they performed. Now, unbeknownst to them, on 50% of the groups on the teams, there was an interloper. And that okay. interloper was an actor named Nick. Right? And Nick had been hired to behave just like the other MBA students, but to do some things that were a little undesirable, right? Like sometimes he would act a little bit bored. He might put his feet up on the desk and like text his girlfriend, right? <laughs> sometimes he would act a little bit obnoxious. Like he might say things like, have you attended a business school class before? And what's so interesting is that William Phelps showed on team after team after team that those teams that had Nick on them performed at a 45% worse rate. And more interestingly than that was that the other people on the team started to take on his behaviors. So, um, for example, um, I've watched these videos and there's one where he comes in, he's with the MBA students and they think he's one of them, right? And they're really energized, right? They are ready to conquer this task. They want to get that reward money. They sit down, they're sitting up straight, ready to go. But Nick is, is playing a depressive pessimist. And, you know, he's kind of low energy. He doesn't think it's going to work out. And it's just incredible because you can see on this video over about a 20-minute period that the three MBA students gradually become absolutely deflated, just like mm. him. At one point, one of the women puts her head down on the table and says, oh my gosh, when is this going to be over? Right? <laughs> and not only that, but when he acts a little bit jerky, they start acting jerky too, but not just to him, to one another. Yeah. So I think that most people think, most managers and leaders think an individual performance problem is an individual problem, right? Okay, that issue with Fritz, well, that's an issue between me, the boss, and Fritz. But we know from a lot of research that an individual performance problem is a systemic problem that impacts the entire team, sometimes the, even the entire organization. And we can see that really a, to get a, a really high-performing team, we need to encourage our Fritzes to move on to other pastures <laughs> so that then we can have performance still being contagious. But that meaning that that performance is spiraling up as our employees are so delighted to be surrounded by stunning colleagues. And average performers spiral you down or right. they just they they're like gravity. They just keep you glued below the level where you can perform. And when I thought about different teams over the years that I've led, uh, I've seen that where average performers are on the team. It's almost like group work at school, if you remember that. You get a group of like, oh, I got the best students in my group. This is going to be a great project. Or sometimes you get into a group and there's that one deadbeat who just doesn't quite get it or uh, isn't going to do the homework or miss the deadlines. And you're like, oh, and so that actually plays out in real life. So generous severance. So what you do is you tell the person, I don't think your time is here at Netflix or whatever your company is. And uh, here's 
you know, whatever generous severance would be for that position months in advance and you're done here. Like, is that yeah, how Yeah, that's right. And I do think, I mean, I have to say that um, because Netflix is so public about this, mm. people really opt in for the, to the system. And I mentioned earlier that, um, that high performance is in tension with, with security, right? So right. if you are trying to create a, a work culture that is people feel deeply secure, then that's not likely to lead to top performance. Mm. And I know that's quite provocative, right? Because we want to have both. Right? We, we want to have a work environment where everyone feels deeply secure and we have performance spiraling up. But at Netflix, what they've said is, okay, look, you know, our goal here is to have an environment where people know that they will be surrounded by the best. And for those of you who want to be on a team where you are surrounded by the best, please come join us. And those of you who would prefer to work at a company that you may not be surrounded by the best, but you have a lot of job security, then this is probably the not, not the best work environment for you. So people opt in, but there's a lot of positive energy with that excitement of working in those high-performing environments. You mentioned security, and so I think you raised this in the book, and it's certainly been a critique of Netflix over the years that sometimes employees feel threatened because, am I going to get fired? Am I going to get fired? Like, is my performance adequate? How do you address that? Or do you just end up like where you're Jack Welch and the bottom 10% get fired every month? Like, where where, do, where does that show up in yeah. Netflix? Like, how do I know I'm secure? How do I know I'm a rock star? Not the yeah. guy who's, when you call me into your office next time, Aaron, I'm gone. Yeah, I'm, I'll answer the part that question in three parts, and let me sure. say that what I'm going to suggest it's crazy, but you could do it. Okay. 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 All right. So <laughs> it's crazy because it's so different than the way we normally do things. Uh, let me do say that I am 100% against the methods that were used at Microsoft and GE, which are sometimes stack ranking, sometimes called rank and yank, right? Mm. And those have been proven to be um, detrimental methods in organizations where or you fire your you know, bottom performers every month or every year. Yeah. That's right. I mean, nothing worse for um, for team spirit than to say, look, every year you have to fire oh, 10% because then it's going to be like, oh, Carrie, you know, I know either you're going to get fired or I'm going to get fired. So let me do everything to make sure it's you. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. That's And you raise that, right? Like it can create competitiveness within the company where you're not competing against, you know, Hulu, you're competing against uh, each other. That's right. So that's horrible. I think that's the yeah. last thing that we want to do. And I kind of like this image that they use at Netflix, which is to think about the organization as an Olympic team instead of as a family, right? So right. Um, an Olympic team, of course, we try to hire the best. And then once we get the best, when we get the right person in every spot, we work hard on making sure that we are collaborative and we've got great team spirit and we're close to one another. I mean, teamwork is everything, right? Yeah. But we also know on an ongoing basis that if ever anybody is not the best per person for that team that we, the coach, I, the coach, owe it to the team that I then find the best person to replace them with, right? right? And that brings me to the other point. So, um, so at Netflix, they use something that's called the keeper test, which I know oh. sounds super provocative, but you know, whether, whether your listeners like love it or hate it, I do actually think it's a very useful uh, mechanism 
for leaders to at least evaluate what's going on around them. And this method is simply that if you are, let's say you are leading a team of of eight people and you maybe every six months or so, you just do a little mental exercise and you imagine that, for example, I don't know, Stanley on your team comes into your office and he says, uh, Carrie, boss, right? He says, um, I, I'm sorry, I found another job. I'm leaving the company. Right. And the question that you then ask yourself is, if Stanley told me that he were leaving my team, how would I how would I feel? Right. I mean, would I be devastated? Would I say, oh, my gosh, Stanley, don't leave me. (laughs) What can I do to keep you on the team? Anything. And if you would fight to keep Stanley, then it's clear Stanley is the right person for that spot. (laughs) Mm. You don't need to you don't need to check boxes or add up numbers. If you'd fight to keep Stanley, you know he's the right person, right? But would you perhaps feel relieved when Stanley told you that? Mm-hmm. Would you think, oh good, now instead of focusing 80% of my energy on helping Stanley, I can put my energy where I want to on helping my top performers be even better. Right. Or would you maybe even feel a little bit excited, like mm. thinking about who you could get in that spot, right? Yeah. And that's where I think if your honest answer is, you know, I think I would either feel relieved or excited if someone on my team told me they were leaving, then you really you know, owe it to yourself and the team to ask yourself another question, which is, have I given Stanley the um, the coaching and feedback he needs in order to be his best self, right? right. And, and if I have, okay, and I still see he's not turned into the, the performance, I, the performer I would fight to keep, then clearly, you know, he's, he's not the best person for that job and I need to find another solution, right? And, and if I haven't, if I haven't given that feedback, boy, I better go do it right now, right? Mm. Okay, so clar- clarify this or correct me if I'm wrong. You wrote the book. I only read it. Okay, but I believe you even suggest that people can go into their boss and ask the keeper test. So if you're my boss, Aaron, I can go in once a year or so and say, Aaron, I'm not leaving, but if I told you I was leaving today, how hard would you fight to keep me? Yeah, this is, is right? the crazy part, Carrie. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so that's why you said earlier, you know, what do you do if you feel if you feel afraid? And I did see that actually often. I would have, I mean, some some managers I found were really good at being mm-hmm. candid with their employees on an ongoing basis. You know, I would totally fight to keep you. And some employees said to me, "Well, I just didn't know." You know, like mm-hmm. I, I thought I was a high performer, but would my boss fight to keep me? And this is where you you can see that the responsibility is not just towards the the manager, but also towards the employee. So yeah. if my boss hasn't told me and I'm feeling uncertain and that's making me feel uncomfortable, then I use the keeper test prompt. And that's right. just what you said, right? I, I, I put it, I, I should probably give you a little warning. So I'll set up a meeting and I put on the agenda, Keeper test. Right? Right. So, so you know, Carrie, my boss, right? Mm-hmm. You know that um, that when I meet with you on Wednesday, that I'm going to ask you if you would fight to keep me, and you mm-hmm. better be ready then to give me a really honest answer. And 
I know people feel often terrified when they think about asking the question, but I found that it was such an interesting, an interesting again, mechanism because once an employee gets the answer, then I learn, okay, my boss would fight to keep me. I have nothing to worry about. Or my boss wasn't sure, but now he told me clearly what I need to do in order to up my performance. So I have got clear feedback and I'm ready to act on it, hopefully to turn myself into the high performer that my manager is looking for. Yeah, that is really, really good to think about. And I've mostly been a boss, but when I've had a boss, um, I was always asking that question in different forms. I always wanted to know how I was doing and I would ask for feedback. Like, I want to know, am I am I hitting the target? Am I doing what's right? Okay, that's helpful. Let's move into another counterintuitive area, Aaron. Let's talk about compensation because that's another thing that I find generally, like there's a lot of business leaders, entrepreneurs listening some of them pay very large salaries. Others are like in startup mode and they're bootstrapping or they got a massive line of credit. A lot of people run charities, churches who listen to this podcast. So I find generally in the church, people are underpaid or overpaid that there's almost no middle and overpaid without merit. I'm not talking about, it's just like, oh yeah, we just, you know, we just write checks around here, that kind of thing. And there's no, there's no happy middle. What, what did you learn? Because it is a generous culture. If you're creative and you're part of that talent density, yeah, Reed even came out against paying performance bonuses and um, like percentages. So if the stock goes up, you get X. It's just like, no, you get a flat salary, no incentive bonusing, uh, but a very generous salary that is what, bigger than the market will bear or th- what is it in the top 30% or 30% more than the average? Or how, how does that work? Well, it's just supposed to be top of market. So the idea is that you should imagine at any moment that the employees on your team are being headhunted by someone else. Or in they the will church, be. If they're that good, they'll be headhunted. Yeah. Right. That right. And you should imagine that at any moment they're being offered a higher salary from from someone else. Now, if you would fight to keep them, right, then you want to know what their top market rate is and you want to pay them just a little bit above that. So they'll never come to you and say, I'm leaving the company because I got more somewhere else. And if they do, then that means that you you didn't know what their market rate was ahead of time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, the idea is that you always kind of try to, to, there's actually one like crazy thing they do at Netflix, another one, but they encourage their employees to speak to recruiters and even go on interviews at other companies in order to find out what their market rate is. <laughs> So that, that, and then come back and tell Netflix, right? (laughs) So that Netflix knows that it's always paying that top of market rate. But I don't want to be too discouraging uh, to those of you who are, who are running nonprofit organizations who are, who are working in church environments. I mean, I do think that um, this isn't just about money. If you're in a, if you're in a kind of a a heart work like that, if you're in a work uh, environment where you find people who maybe you have employees who just want to make a big impact, right? Mm-hmm. But that still brings us back to the same principle, which is that if you're if you're not paying your employees a lot of money, if you're a nonprofit and you don't have a lot and they could make a lot more money at a for-profit, you know, don't you think that those top performers want to be surrounded by other top performers so they can see, mm-hmm. wow, my organization is really making an impact? 
right? And I think that's where you see that, um, of course, money is not the only thing, but high performers want to make a difference. Yep. And at a certain level, I would just say, because I've lived in the church space for a long time, if you are underpaying your employees, you're making it really hard for them to stay employed or even to stay in the industry. And um, any tips, like has, has uh, I mean, Reed's, Reed's running a for-profit company. He has a board of directors, but they're not micromanaging by any stretch. Any tips on how you would sell that to a board if you're running a not-for-profit? Like, hey, we got to, I mean, I went through that and I use the term living wage. Mm. I just said, guys, we have to start paying a living wage to our team. And so we did comparables. What does a teacher make? Teachers are well-paid in Canada. What does a firefighter make? A school principal? Uh, you know, we, we looked at some market indicators and we don't pay crazy, but we pay well. And I don't want to make it so that um, you know, someone says, well, we have to be a two income house or I've got to get a side hustle to be able to even make rent or pay the mortgage or buy groceries or put gas in my car. Any, any thoughts on that that you could offer for leaders who have to make that case to a board? Yeah, but I really want to go back to what I was saying earlier, which is that your board may feel, oh, well, we can't pay a lot because you've got so many people in your organization, right? Right, right. So, what, so what if you go back to your, your board and you say, you know what, um, I have six positions open and I really believe that if I get one, you know, one rock star in this position, that that's just going to lift up this whole, this whole department. So let me put together all of that money and go out and hire the best. And if you do that in every in every area, you're not costing the 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 company more money, right? You're just um you're just hiring less, you're getting more talent, and then that talent is spiraling up. So maybe that's not the kind of argument that you're looking for, no, but that's I actually think a really that's good argument to go to. No, that's a really good argument because churches are notorious for keeping on poor talent to adequate talent. And many companies are. Many companies are too. Many businesses are as well. So I think that's that's brilliant. Okay. Um, oh, why no bonuses? Why no bonuses? Why just a flat salary? Yeah. So these are actually forms of control processes that we use in most companies. Um, okay. KPIs, right? Key performance indicators, management by objective, and paper performance bonuses. Those right. are all control mechanisms that we use in order to kind of keep our, our hands full, uh, firmly on our employees' shoulders and say, you know, we'll only give you, we'll only give you your money if you perform, right? And mm -hmm. the, okay, there's those mechanisms were developed for the industrial era when things were changing less frequently. But what I've seen is that there is nothing worse than saying in January, you know, these are your specific goals. And if you've met these goals in December, then you'll get a big payout. Because that keeps us from being flexible as an organization. Mm. I mean, during the year, so many things change and we want our leaders constantly focused on how do we need to adjust the organization direction to the right or the left based on the tensions of the moment, not focused on what do I need to do in order to get my bonus, <laughs> right? So I do believe that that idea of bonuses is totally outdated. Plus, since people don't 
know if they're going to get the money or not, it it makes them less motivated than if you actually just give them the money right up front, assuming that they will perform well. And then if they don't, of course, adequate performance gets a generous severance, right? I mean, if, if they've shown poor judgment uh, uh, over time, well, then obviously that's not the right person for that spot. Yeah. And if they fail to keep test, right, then right. you've got another issue. So I see how this is all pulling together. And then can you say something about just competition and bonuses, performance incentives, and that kind of thing. Because I thought that was a, perhaps in my mind, that was the most compelling argument against bonusing and performance incentives. So why does having performance incentives create competition among staff members? Yeah. Oh, well, if, for example, you have a bonus pool, I mean, that's very common, right? So very common would be that I have a certain amount of money and I can give that to some or not or to others. So either I can pool it together and give it to one employee or I can give a certain amount to a to a to each employee. Um, But again, these are these are processes that lead our our employees to recognize that they are in competition with one another. Mm. On On an Olympic team, we want our employees to all feel like, you know what? Our goal is that each of us will be performing, you know, at maximum potential. And my goal is to make sure that I do everything I can to help you perform and help her perform. And that will also increase my own performance. So you don't want to divide up the your bonus pool or have anyone feel that they're being compensated based on how well one person does in comparison to another. Right. Okay, super helpful. Let's talk about candor as well. This is a challenge in so many organizations because there's what you said to your boss, there's what you say at the dinner table when you're debriefing at home. What I really wanted to say was, or what I really think of him is, and um, people have a hard time telling the truth at work, don't they? Oh, we do have a, a hard time telling the truth. Uh, I think it's important because uh, so many companies these days, organizations today are, are talking about the importance of feedback. And I do right. believe that there's a uh, there's been a growing awareness that um, that giving a lot of candid feedback to one another is really a free way to boost the performance and success in your organization. But the the problem, Carrie, is the amygdala. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so Tell us about what that. I mean, <laughs> what I mean by that is that. Um, Okay, well, of course, we have different parts of our brain, right? And one, one part of your brain is the frontal cortex. So the frontal cortex is the, the most logical part of your brain. The frontal cortex loves feedback, right? Hmm. The more direct, the better, says the frontal cortex, right? Uh, so the frontal cortex understands the benefit of feedback. It recognizes that in a high-performing organization, we all will benefit if we tell one another honestly what we think that each of those each of our colleagues could do to do a better job. And especially our frontal cortex recognizes I should give my boss clear and direct feedback to help him or her perform better, right? And if I'm the leader, my frontal cortex says, please, employees, give me direct feedback so I can perform better. Uh, That's great. (laughs) (laughs) The reason that this never happens in organizations or so rarely happens is the amygdala. And the amygdala is the most primitive part of your brain, the most reptilian part. The amygdala is very concerned with finding safety in numbers. So, of course, historically, if you got kicked out of the tribe, that would lead to death, right? So. 
So Carrie, if you come to me and you say to me, you know, Aaron, when we were in that meeting yesterday, I really felt your you spoke with such intensity and that it just squashed out all of the other ideas in, in the room. And I think you'd be more successful in the next meeting if blah, 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 right? If you give me that feedback, my my amygdala is likely to start setting off an alarm, right? And mm. that alarm is saying, Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm going to get kicked off of this team. Right. And that, of course, physically throws your body into fight or flight. Right. So fight. Um, you deny it. Right. I become defensive. It's not true. You're the problem. Right. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> yeah, or, welcome to every marriage and every. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay. The old amygdala. <laughs> the other problem that or flight. Right. Flight is right. that I say, I say, oh, thank you so much. Thank you for telling me that. But then I try to never speak to you again. Right? <laughs> I'm just going to go into the corner and cry for an hour. Okay. Leave me or alone. If yeah. I'm your boss, you give me that feedback. And I say, if. Yeah. If um, I'm your boss and you give me that feedback, I say, well, thank you very much. But then I kind of put a black check next to your name. Oh, well, this person is not is not loyal to me as a leader. No promotion. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So um, what we need to do in organizations in order to 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 take advantage of what the frontal cortex knows, but the amygdala is afraid of, what we need to do is put structured feedback moments into our our collaboration on an ongoing basis. This is not an annual 360. This is like a daily thing. Well, at least, let's say at least monthly, right? I mean, or weekly. So for example, Carrie, like let's say you and I are colleagues and um, every week we meet with a a supplier or a client, right? Well, maybe we decide that um, twice a month, we're going to meet, or at least once a month, we're going to meet just to give one another feedback, right? Mm-hmm. And in that meeting, I know that you're going to tell me what you think. You're not there to tell me what you love about me. In that right. meeting, you're going to tell me what I can do in order to do a better job in my next meeting. And I'm going to tell you what I think you could do to do a better job. And now we know, okay, that meeting's going to happen. And I expect to receive clear feedback. And I'm just going to tell my amygdala, this isn't something to freak out about, <laughs> Right. And I mean, they do something that I did think was crazy at Netflix when I first heard about it. They do these uh, these 360 degree feedback dinners. Okay, I was going to ask you about that. Talk about the dinners. (laughs) Yeah, because there's a story in the book, I think, toward the end that's just insane. (laughs) Well, what they do is they go out. maybe once a year or so, right? I mean, it's not a process. It's not mandatory, but most managers do it. About once a year, they would go out with their team over a meal usually, but lately they do it over Zoom, right? And um, uh, they take turns. So I'm up first, right? We're all around the table. I'm up first and we go around and each person at the table gives me some feedback about what, you know, what she thinks that I, what Susan thinks that I could do in order to improve my performance, right? I say, thank you very much. And then we move on to David, right? And we each, each person gives me feedback. Now, when I first heard about that, I just thought, well, what's the point, right? Why do you have to drag my weaknesses through the group, In front of everybody, like give it to me one-on-one in my office, okay? Right. Can't you tell me that in private? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But I saw it created such such an interesting 
it created such an interesting opportunity because when people give feedback one-on-one, well, first of all, my amygdala is likely to feel something like, wait, maybe this is about you, not about me, right? Mm -hmm. And second of all, I never really know whether or not you're right or not, right? Maybe you give me feedback and I think, well, okay, but do other people think that? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But when we go into a, a group setting like that, I may hear, oh, well, Suzanne thinks that I that I'm too intense, but everybody else in the the team disagreed with that and said my energy level was my greatest greatest asset. Whereas there was something else that everyone on the team said I need to work on. So now I really know where my focus is. Um, and I, I mean, so getting what like I heard a group from consensus. Yeah. And what I heard from people like time and again was it's it's kind of hard to go into the meeting, right? You feel a little bit uncomfortable going in, but once you get started, you see it'll be fine because everyone is there to be kind and generous and no one wants to hurt you or attack you. And everyone gets a lot of tough advice. And mm. often I heard people say, you know what, Aaron, that was the greatest developmental moment of my life. Right. Wow. So I actually started doing those on my own team, Carrie, despite my initial skepticism. And even for your listeners who think it's absolutely wild, (laughs) don't underestimate it, especially if you have high talent density. If you have a lot of Fritzes and Nicks on your team, you might not be ready yet. Okay. What difference has it made on your team, Erin? Well, what I saw was that instead of it being like always me, the manager, who had to tell each person what to do, and then it was like creating issues between me and that person, that this Mm. became something where we were all accountable to one another, right? And sometimes we'd start kind of, the group would start joking about it or pointing it out in a, you know, a lovable joking way, right? And since we all had things we were working on, it just became like, okay, this is our improvement project right? As opposed to, well, that guy said something to me and I don't think that was very nice. Right. Right. Well, and this really, I've seen leaders use power where they basically put a little um, feedback society together, either on their board or in their top leaders, and it's all their fan club. And even though they have challenges and that really impacts scale, that really impacts talent, density, all of those things. So if you're really serious about your mission, take notes. Okay, so you got radical candor. I want to go back to the two most famous and and contentious issues. Let's talk about no vacation policy or take what you want. So what is the official Netflix policy on vacations? Yeah, so it's two words, take some. Um, So there's- Fantastic. yeah, so that's it. There is. It's on there my five is, pages. It's good. Yeah, the policy is the vacation policy is there. There is no vacation policy, hmm. and of course, um, and I had the same concerns when I heard this that your listeners did. One of two concerns, right? The first concern is you think the first the, the first one everyone thinks, oh my gosh, that's horrible. <laughs> oh, that's horrible because no one will take any vacation at all. <laughs> Right. right. Um, so that's the first one that people worry about. And the second one that people think is, is, oh my gosh, that's horrible for my organization because people will go on vacation all the time. Right, mm. yeah, right, right. Well, um, I'm going to be in Europe in the summer and South America in the fall. <laughs> and I think I'll hit Australia in the spring and please keep the paychecks coming, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I mean, that's the entrepreneur's worry, right? When you... Uh-huh. The, the worry that if I don't control my employees, that they'll start behaving irresponsibly. 
Right. Um, but that really brings us to this idea of what what I think is one of the kind of the most interesting sayings that we can take from this, which is lead with context, not okay. controls. And what I mean by that is that if you're if your employees, if you have a group of high performing employees that have good judgment and are really committed to the success of the team and the organization, then they don't need rules telling them what they can and can't do. And in fact, if you give them rules, it's likely to make them behave less responsibly, like almost mm-hmm. feel like, okay, you treat me like a child, I'll act like a child, right? Right, right. Um, but w- Instead, we can engage in in thoughtful conversation on an ongoing basis with each employee about the needs of the organization and the desires of that employee in order to give employees freedom, but also help them understand, you know, what's kind of the, the realm of okay around here. Right. And um, I found all sorts of things. You know, I found some employees who who worked like a 90 hour week and then took every three weeks off. Right? <laughs> I found other employees who um, who worked, you know, like in the morning and after midnight, but never in the afternoon. <laughs> And I think that that's one of the beauties of uh, having these kind of free work environments is that, of course, every employee has, you know, different passions and a different a different personality and different things they want to accomplish. And in an organization with a lot of rules, those rules really squash out the the individual's needs. Right. So here we can have adult discussions and get to the same point where people are taking a reasonable and, and healthy amount of vacation. But also we don't have these kind of one one rule fits all sort of thing that we have in most organizations. Reed did something when he implemented this. I don't think it was right away. It was maybe after a year or two where he decided he needed to draw a line in the sand about what the expectation was. And he ended up taking six weeks off, was it? Can you, yeah. can you explain the thinking behind his decision? Yeah. So, so okay. So um, if you are going to have an, a low rule or a low control work environment, then mm. you need two things, right? You can't just remove the controls and hope that everything will go okay. Even if you have high talent density and you have candor, you still need lead with context, not control, which is what we just right. spoke about and we'll talk more about later. But you also need, of course, great modeling from mm-hmm. leadership. I mean, how I behave as a leader becomes so important. And if I tell you, oh, please take take a good amount of vacation because I really am- believe it's important for your health, but then I never take any vacation myself. I mean, you're not going to take vacation, right? It doesn't take you long to figure out. I don't mean it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so instead, modeling becomes everything. And Reed does take, I mean, consistently six weeks of vacation every year, which is, of course, a lot for an American CEO. I think more interestingly than that, he's always talking about his vacations. It seems like every time I saw him during this research project, he would be on stage talking to his team and he'd start out by showing slides from his last vacation, right? <laughs> and of course, he does he does that for a reason. He right. does that to say, look, to be successful in this company, you're expected to take vacation also, right? Trickle down. I was so I was so surprised, you know. Again, working through the book and then we're trying to implement the principles. Um, we didn't have a vacation policy. We pay for people's vacation, et cetera, et cetera. Not for their vacation, but just right. you're paid when you're not working, right. kind of thing. Whether you're sick or whatever. 
And I, I just said, I brought it to the team and I said, look, you need to take some time off. And they're like, well, we got lots of podcasts that have to ship and we have this. And they're all like telling me why they can't take time off. And I'm like, guys, I am taking July off like the entire month. I'm like, no, July. Okay. I'm going to start with four weeks. I'm gone. You run the company and your homework after further discussion, I'm summarizing a half hour in one minute. I said, okay, guys, you're struggling with this. Here's your, well, you see, we got to, we got to do this and we got to do the daily email. I had okay. Your assignment is you have to give me all of your vacation days for 2021 next week. And we're putting them on the company calendar and you have to take them. It was, it was so counterintuitive because you're afraid everyone's going to go to Hawaii and never come off the hammock, right? And in the meantime, they're just concerned because you have high talent density. You have people who really want to make a difference. That's and right. uh, and so what happens if you have an abuser? What happens if you have somebody who does go to Hawaii for three months? Like, does oh. radical candor take care of that? Well, you know, I, I actually don't. I, I actually think if you have a system of high performance in your organization, that people are and freedom, that people yeah. are so passionate about what it is about what they're doing that unless, okay, maybe if I've just like accomplished something really important, right? Like, mm. you know, I just had this huge project and I just poured my soul into it and it was a great success. And now I'm going to take two months off. Yeah. Great. Do it. Do it. Right? Mm. Um, but I don't, I, I don't think that you're at much risk of that, of people just disengaging when they have the freedom to choose their own projects and, and work on things that are really important to them, right? And that's what we'll, yeah. we'll talk about in a moment. Um, I think a much bigger risk, as you said, is people not taking vacation. And that's why, like your action, Carrie, it's so important because when you take a month off like that, the all of July, and you say, you know, this is what leaders do in our organization organization. Then people think, oh, really? I could do that? Yeah. <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and maybe they don't dare a whole month at once, but maybe they'll dare three weeks. <laughs> they're going to work their way up to it and they're going to build teams and they're going to take responsibility and they're going to lead. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's exciting. And if you're worried about well, what if everyone takes time off at once, just read the book because I want to move on to other things. You deal with that in the book. That's but, right. Um, you can see it's so memorable because I read it once and yet I remember all of these things. So well-written. Um, let's talk about travel approval and expense approvals. So, and decision-making that was radical in the book. Like I remember when Netflix expanded internationally, there was a whole decision about like a multi-million dollar decision about a documentary. Yeah. And, uh, man, the push down level of decision-making is astonishing. So let's start with expense and travel. There's no expense policy. Is that right? Same thing yeah, with vacation. So it's just the same thing as the vacation, which is yeah. that um, spend money in Netflix's best interest. Spend money in your organization's best interest. And I think we can really see here um, the the weight of responsibility that employees feel when mm. they see that their organization and their boss trusts them enough to sign off on a on on a big purchase or on a new deal without needing to get approval from someone above them right so that's really this kind of um dear employees we trust you to behave like adults and therefore they behave like adults right mm. 
Um, but I think what's so critical, Carrie, that you said a moment ago is that um, those policies, like the vacation policy or the the expense policy, I think those are really just symbols of freedom, right? Mm-hmm. Um, those are not, I mean, Netflix has not been a massive success because of their vacation policy. Right. It's not like, <laughs> well, we got rid of vacation rules and all of a sudden we're in all over the planet. That's, that's not right. it. Yeah. That's right. Those are symbols of something that's happening at a much deeper level in the organization. And that's where, you know, where you brought up this whole thing about decision-making, which is that the boss's job is not to approve or disapprove a decision. But that's something that's pushed down, you know, all the way down to what they call the informed captain, which is someone who may be many, many levels below in the organization. Yeah. On that note, again, after I read the book, we had a a, a six-figure contract, might have been a multi-six-figure contract, which in our case is still a very big contract in our company. And I thought about it, okay, put your money where your mouth is. Because in the past, I would have read it, I would have signed off on it. It was a 24-year-old who was responsible. I said, you decide. And if you think it's a good deal, you sign the contract. Pretty sure he read every clause and signed the contract. And you know what? And, I bet he was working harder the next day. Oh, yeah. yeah <laughs> I mean, really, exactly. that, that really instigates these feelings of ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Employees start to feel so invested when they see, well, gosh, it's my judgment that yeah. that will that will impact the company. They use this great image. It's my favorite image. I've been talking about it all the time, um, this decision-making image. And I think in the ma- vast majority of teams and organizations today, we still find a decision-making pyramid. And what mm. I mean by that is that the leader or the chairman is at the top of the pyramid and the lower-level employees are at the bottom. And of course, a lower-level employee can make an inexpensive or unimportant decision. But for anything expensive or important, it has to be pushed up the the pyramid for approval. Um, But if we think, okay, lead with context, not control, and something even more radical, don't seek to please your boss. Seek to do what's best for the organization. If we if we have those things in mind, then we could move to an image of a decision-making tree. And with the decision-making tree, we have the leader or the chairman who's down there in the dirt, right? Who's at the, right. sorry to put you at the dirt, Carrie. Who's down there like at the root of the tree. You feel fine down there? Right. <laughs> and the um, that leader is setting, setting the direction for the company, right? Okay, this is our North Star. These are the key dilemmas and tensions that we need to keep in mind and remembering which ways to turn when we come across them. These are all the things we have to keep in mind when we make decisions in the organization. And then we have like the, the, the next level of leaders, maybe the executive leadership team. And they're there at the, at those big lower trunks, setting more direction for their, for their teams and departments. But then you have the, the lower level managers who are there up there at the tiny branches up at the, the, the end leaves of the tree. And those are the ones like that 24 year old person on your 
staff. Those are the people who are signing off on on those big decisions, um, or I mean, at least on some of the big decisions mm-hmm. that uh, keeping in mind all of the context that's been set for them for the organization. And that's where we really find that um, we can empower our employees beyond what we had ever imagined. And what I love about this is that, like, if if you're working, if you're leading an organization that you hope will grow, I mean, if you think about a pyramid, it can only grow so fast, right? Right. There's a pretty clear bottleneck right there at the top. And the bottleneck is the leader, right? Uh Um, but with a tree, we can see what's happened at Netflix, which is that your growth possibilities are endless, depending on the context that's being set by by the trunk, right? And you can grow as fast or as wildly or as in many directions as as that that tree may choose because there's no bottleneck. Well, it's really interesting because if you think about like even a church, you can think about that in terms of staff and it's like, well, we only have five staff, which is would be big for a lot of churches. But if you actually think about the people who attend your church and the members, you know, then you're into hundreds or thousands of people, or in some cases, tens of thousands. And if you think of them as engaged and you start to percolate this through your whole culture, you will get a rapidly growing organization as opposed to bottlenecking decisions. Same, we've seen this with online movements and online companies. If your customers become raving fans, they almost become the enthusiasts and the decision makers for you. So I think that is... So worth exploring. The other fringe benefit for a lot of, I talk to overwhelmed, overburdened leaders every single day. You were shocked when you met with Reed Hastings because, okay, I think you know where I'm going. Do you want to tell us when you met with Reed and say, how are we going to write this book? You're the CEO of Netflix. How are you going to have time to actually write a book? What what did he tell you? What was that yeah. meeting like? I remember that meeting so well. I didn't know him that well at the time. And uh, when he, we agreed to meet, so I live in Paris. We'd met at a very early morning. We were in a uh, we were in a coffee shop in Paris. I remember that the coffee shop hadn't really opened yet. The table, the chairs were still up on the table. And this was really concerning me. I just didn't understand how we could run this company <laughs> and write a book at the same time. So I said, Reed, you know, how much time are are you going to be able to devote to this? And he said, oh, I can give you as much time as you need, Aaron. I'm not very busy right now. (laughs) And I remember I was like, what? You're not busy right now. <laughs> but I came to see later that actually that is that was that's his fundamental goal is to not be the chief decision making officer, right? Wow. And of course, if you are the the top of the pyramid, then you are always too busy to invest in something like, uh, you know, some kind of passion project or whatever it may be. Um, But Reed told another story to me about how Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook um, came one day in order to, I guess they swap. Sometimes these leaders like go and um, observe one another, right? And she shadowed him for a day and went to all of his meetings. And she said afterwards, wow, that was really weird, Reed. You know, I was with you all day long and you didn't make one decision. And he said, he said he just felt great. He just felt great because that was his absolute goal was to make no, as little decisions as possible, right? And the fewer decisions he made, the more that he was really living by this idea of putting the putting the CEO down there in the dirt, right? So I have to so, ask the question, what does he do all day? 
<laughs> well, so how he spends his time, it's actually quite remarkable. Um, he does huge numbers of one-on-ones with people mm-hmm. throughout the organization. So he spends, you know, hours and hours having 30-minute meetings with people at various levels in the company. And he's there not in order to tell them what they can or cannot do, but in order to both hear what they're thinking so he knows how to adjust, how he's setting the context for the company, right? So and also so that he can um, give them context as he hears them maybe misunderstanding some of the key principles. So he's in this constant contact, contact, and then they have these quarterly meetings where they bring together all of their leaders, and that's the time to focus on making sure that the context is set as effectively as possible. And was he accessible when you were writing the book? I mean, I imagine it was a year-long process or longer to write this book. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say that he had nothing else to do, but every Sunday morning we spoke. <laughs> wow. And he wrote half the book. You wrote half the book, you know, the whole deal. Like, it's pretty cool. He was he was half involved. I wouldn't say he did half of the writing, but uh, we talked every Sunday and every Sunday we worked on it together. Great, great. That's, that's amazing because so many leaders are there like, I just don't have the time. I don't have the time. And... Um, now you can begin to see when you really empower your team, you give them that culture of freedom, responsibility, autonomy. That's when great things happen. Okay, so anything we haven't covered, you wanted to talk. I know you wanted to talk about uh, Netflix expanding globally because they oh, went yeah. from this American company that worked in America, kind of you know took over from Blockbuster, the whole deal, and just took took us all into the digital age and led the way. And now they're global. So yeah. go where you wanted to go with that. Yeah, well, that was my, because my first book, The Culture Map, is all about national cultural differences. When I first started working with Netflix, that was my big concern. They were getting ready for this big international expansion. And I just was, I was particularly concerned at the time about what what was going to happen with this idea of candid feedback around the world. And I do remember one story from uh, one of the the American managers who had moved to Japan, and she was trying to get her employees to give her candid feedback. And one of her one-on-ones, she asked, she said to her, one of her Japanese employees, you know, what can, please give me feedback. What can I do in order to be a better manager to you? And the woman started crying. <laughs> And she said, she said, Josephine, I really want to be Netflix, but I just need to be clear. I've never given anybody candid or open feedback before, let alone my boss. Right. Um, and what I saw was, uh, was quite interesting, which is that many of the behaviors that we're working in California, like, um, anytime feedback, meaning I can give you feedback at anywhere, anytime, didn't work so well in places like Brazil or Singapore or Tokyo. Um, But when they asked, when they said, for example, in Sao Paulo, you know, um, dear Brazilian team, right, please work together to figure out what what methods you'll be using here in Brazil in order to make candor come alive in a way that works in your culture. Then each country was able to come up with their own methods for making sure that that candor and that feedback was getting out there, but in a way that was culturally appropriate, right? So I think that that's the message that we can take away from this is that if we are a global organization, we can keep the same principles around the world, but we can't assume that the techniques 
we use locally will work in other countries. Those things we need to allow um, to encourage to to grow and uh, to grow around the world in each country. So have they been able to keep the principles like you would say in Japan or Singapore, there is radical candor, there is that kind of openness. It just happened in a slightly different way than it would have in the U.S.? What was fascinating in Japan, the most surprising thing happened. I never would have thought that, which is that they they really responded well to the 360 feedback dinners. So the, like um, spontaneous feedback, it really was not working culturally for them. But when because, perhaps because it's quite a group-oriented society mm-hmm. and because they had a clear kind of um, instructions for how the feedback was going to be given to be helpful to one another, and they all knew what the expectations were and how they should prepare. I actually found the Japanese to be better at it than the Americans were. Uh, wow. So they started giving doing those 360 dinners, you know, every quarter instead of every year. And that way they were getting the feedback out there, even though it wasn't maybe happening like spontaneously in the hallway. So yeah, they found their ways. Wow. That's so great to know. I got to ask you, well, I got you because you're the culture mapper. Uh, what are the differences with Canada? Got to ask as a Canadian. Oh, well, on t- in terms of candor, so I have a, feed- I have a, a feedback scale, right? <laughs> it, uh-huh. looks at, it looks at um, neg- give it, when I have to give someone negative or, or critical feedback, how direct we are with that feedback, right? And what I see on that is that um, countries like the Netherlands and Israel are two of the most direct cultures in the world, right? Okay, so the amygdala is not very, not very uh, likely to go off with a little bit of feedback over there. You can I have kind a Dutch background, so yeah, we, we are good at blunt. <laughs> That's right. And <laughs> then the demise. U.S. is towards the middle of the scale. So okay. although on the one hand, we are focused on, let's say, verbalizing feedback in the U.S., we also do a lot of positive wrapping. Um, mm. So when we give feedback, you know, this whole three positives with every negative and catching yeah. people doing things right, um, which is not so common in most European countries where we, uh, in Europe, we may be more, yeah, a little bit more blunt than in the U.S. And then if we move over to Latin America, a little bit less direct than the U.S., and then you go over to countries like Japan or, or Thailand, even less direct. Canada is a little bit less direct than the U.S., so also towards the middle, um, but a little bit less direct than the U.S. And of course, in the U.S., we have strong regional differences. So as right. you know, the New Yorkers the South, are much, New much York. more direct. You Canadians, a little bit more like us Minnesotans, right? <laughs> right, right. And we're, we can be passive-aggressive sometimes, too. <laughs> oh, that was great. Was terrible. You know, we can, we can do that sometimes as Canadians. Um, any final words, Erin? This has been so, so helpful. Yeah. Well, I just want to say that I think often when people hear this, they think, well, that works for Netflix, but there's no way that we could do this here. I mean, we already have a culture. It just seems like too much. And I just want to encourage you, all of your listeners, you know, um, if you want more innovation, if you want more flexibility, if you want your employees to feel more autonomy and more responsibility and to get that um, those benefits that come from from freedom and responsibility, then you don't have to do this all at once. And it didn't happen like that at Netflix. It's not like they woke up one day and boom. Instead, you can take it just small step by small step. Like maybe you can do one thing in your organization to increase talent density. Maybe you're not ready to fire Fritz, but maybe you are ready to hire one person instead of four in order to get somebody who's a, who's who's better, right? Who's 
a higher performer. Whatever thing you, you're ready to do, one step to increase talent density, then one step to increase candor. Maybe you think that those, uh, those 360 feedback dinners are not ready, are not for your team, but maybe you are ready to start putting, you know, a feedback meeting on the agenda, uh, every month or, or, or any other moment way to get the little bit more candor out there. Take that one step, whatever door opens for you. And then after you've taken one step towards candor and sorry, one step, step towards talent density and one step towards candor, now one step towards freedom. Maybe the vacation policy you're not ready to let go of, but maybe just like you said a moment ago, Carrie, maybe you have one employee and you're really going to let them make a decision instead of making them come through you uh, for mm-hmm. sign off. And then little by little by little, month after month, year after year, we can work towards a culture where we empower our employees more and then we reap the benefits with innovation, speed, and flexibility. Well, the book is called No Rules Rules, Netflix and the Culture of Reinvention. It's by Reed Hastings, the founder and CEO of Netflix, and Aaron Meyer. Aaron, it's been great to be with you today. Uh, If people want to know more about you, they can find the book, obviously, everywhere. But tell us where people can connect with you online, because you're a fascinating follow. Thank you, Carrie. Such a pleasure to be with you. My website is AaronMeyer.com, and please join me on LinkedIn. I'd be very happy to be in touch with all of you. Awesome. Thank you so much, Aaron. Thanks a lot. Take care. Well, you can see why that was a <laughs> New York Times bestselling book that she wrote with Reed Hastings. And uh, man, that was a fascinating conversation. And I continue to be intrigued. And it felt like free consulting again. So thank you, Aaron, for that. Aaron Meyer, uh, you can find out more about her over at the show notes. We got all of that at kerryneuhoff.com uh, slash episode 443. And uh, that's free for you. We include transcripts and links to everything that we talked about there, as well as some things you can share on social. Thank you for everybody who shares, who subscribes, who who lets the world know that this podcast is making a difference. Uh, we continue to be amazed at the response that we're getting, and your support helps us get some of the very finest guests in the world. Speaking of which, we have Chris McChesney from The Four Disciplines of Execution, uh, another book I picked up a couple of years ago and then reached out to Chris or he reached out to me and we're able to, um, well, bring you a fascinating conversation about how to get more from your team and to deepen employee engagement. Here's an excerpt. San Francisco earthquake. I think it was 1906. Ambiguity goes through the roof. In other words, the amount of uncertainty that a human being has to deal with. Everybody's hmm. homes are destroyed. Yeah. Divorce rates skyrocket and marriage rates skyrocket. And sociologists argue, did the disaster bring them together or did it move them apart? And what they started to realize was, wait a minute, it was neither. Had nothing to do with bringing people together. There is a limit, a human limit for ambiguity. And there's a point where I cannot handle any more unanswered questions. But the the number of new goals that are getting launched right now is huge. And we're having to launch those goals with people who've had about all the ambiguity they can physically handle. So you, you, got, the, you got the situation right now. And what we're saying is, okay, if you're into four disciplines, think of the disciplines as a way to lower the ambiguity on the new thing. Okay, that's next time on the podcast. Also coming up, Juliet Funt, Amy Porterfield, Charles Duhigg, talking about the power of habit, Mike Todd, 
Uh, Jacqueline Novogratz, one of the hundred brightest people on the planet, according to many folks. Also have Dave Hollis, Erwin uh, McManus, Jordan Rayner, and a whole lot more coming up. Subscribers, you get that all for free. And uh, thank you to everyone who subscribed, everybody who shares the good news, uh, hopefully, about this show. We really appreciate it. And if you haven't left a rating and review, would love for you to do that. Well, now it's time to ask me anything about productivity. You can leave me your questions by going to kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. Click on leave me a voicemail and, uh, and let me know what you're struggling with with productivity. Today, we're going to take Ian's question. And uh, first, just want to thank our sponsors, Remodel Health. If you haven't yet got their health benefits analysis for your organization, use the code carry 50 for 50% off when you go to remodelhealth.com forward slash analysis. That's carry 50 for 50% off at remodelhealth.com slash analysis. And Right Side Up Soul Care with Danielle Strickland is available for free at worldvision.org slash carry. That's worldvision.org slash carry. Okay, let's get into Ian's question and see what uh, he'd like some coaching on. Hi, I'm a young leader um, working through my ministerial degree towards pastorship and recently have a fiance with two kids that life has just started to get really busy really fast. And I've noticed that while trying to juggle uh, transition from my old job to new ministerial jobs, and on top of that, giving my fiance and her kids uh, the time required, and on top of that, finishing my last year in my pastor's degree, that at every point, there's always something being neglected, whether it's my spiritual journey with God, giving God the time he needs, or whether it's um, giving my family the time that they need, or giving my job the attention that it requires in order for me to provide for all of those things. So um, I'm just curious on how uh, you see and like your opinion on juggling life uh, when it comes to family, uh, calling to pastoralship, and then equally making sure not to neglect God above all things while you are trying to prioritize family and work and provisions. Well, thank you so much for that question. You are going through a lot right now. I know there's a lot of young leaders listening to this, so uh, I just want to empathize. I get it. I mean, I was there. I was working and going through seminary at the same time and a new parent. And uh, yeah, we got married at the end of law school too, before I even went to seminary. So I have been in that season of life. And uh, I just want you to know that, yeah, that is a really big challenge. You've got a new job. You've got a fiance. Uh, you are becoming a stepdad to her children. And you got your final year at school. That's a lot. So your change index, your stress level is high. Here's where I want to start. I want to give you uh, five things to think about. Number one, ask yourself, is this a season? All right, because you're probably living at an unsustainable pace. You can do that. You can sprint for a season. But in order to make sure that that's a season and it doesn't become your life because it becomes your life, you're probably heading toward burnout and you definitely don't want to go in that direction. Uh, here's what I would encourage you to do. Can you put a date or two on the calendar? So uh, obviously... Uh, you know, you're going to be finished school at some point. When is that? Is that six months from now? Is that a year from now? Is that 18 months from now? And you're engaged. Do you have a date for your wedding? Weddings can be very busy. Having been married myself, I remember it gets very busy ahead of a wedding. 
What I would encourage you to do is put a date or two on the calendar, and hopefully you can measure that in months, not a year or more, and say, okay, I have a very high pace until November, until January, until May. Whatever that happens to be, write it down on the calendar. If you can't get to that, then something's probably going to have to go because that is not a very sustainable pace. Okay, so that's the first thing. Try to put some dates on the calendar because you can sprint for a while. You can do a 100-meter sprint, but you can't do a 50-kilometer sprint. Just can't do it. Okay, next piece of advice. Even if you do have a date on the calendar, you have to ask yourself, what can you cut? You've got to probably pare some stuff back and maybe lower your expectations I'm in a very different season of life than when I was doing school and getting married and becoming a parent and all those things. And uh, I wasn't trying to write books. I wasn't trying to do a podcast six times a month. I wasn't trying to do all the things I'm doing now, but I'm at a very different stage. We have an empty nest. My kids are in their 20s. They're independent. And I have more time. Uh, I don't have more time. I can just use my time differently. But you probably have to pare back your expectations. Where to start, and this seems a little silly, but look for something bad or unnecessary that you can just easily say no to. Um, I know, think about, this is a very different metaphor, but think about when you're going through photos on your phone. Now, when I go through photos on my phone, sometimes I'll take eight shots or 18 shots of the same scene. I mean, we never used to do that, but now that it's free and it's on your phone, uh, that's what we do. And then you're like, well, which is the best shot? You know where I often start? I'm just like, okay, I don't know which is the best shot, but I know that's not a great shot. She's got her eyes closed or the sun isn't quite right or the exposure's wrong. And I get rid of all the bad shots and then I'm left with two or three and I can make a better decision. So is there anything bad or unnecessary in your life? Cut it for a season, permanently, whatever. Just like, okay, we're just not going to do that until next year or the year. Or maybe if it's really bad, just get rid of it. It's like, get rid of that, that low stuff. So that's easy. Now I'm going to give you a more difficult thing to do. I want you to look at the things that you accept because Greg McEwen has this great line. He says, if it's not a nine, it's a zero. If it's not a nine out of 10, it's a zero. And where a lot of us get stuck is at six, sevens, and eights. So if you've got some sixes and sevens in your life, yeah, when you have a little more margin in your life, you can say yes to a seven. But maybe you need a ruthless standard at this point. So you've gotten rid of the bad, and now you're taking a look at saying, okay, if it's not absolutely essential, necessary, if it's not a nine, if I'm not super excited, it's not really important, then it's a zero and it's not going to fit into my calendar. So it's the second thing. Third thing, you probably want to get some outside help because your judgment is likely a little bit clouded. My judgment is always clouded. What are you not seeing? So I would try to sit down with a friend, with a mentor, with someone you trust who knows you well, who knows your situation. Maybe they can give you some clarity. Uh, Fourth thing, and I've talked about it a lot in these segments, it's written all over at your best. Uh, Think about your green zone. Those are the three to five best hours of your day, every day. And what you want to do is your most important work. So that could be 15 minutes with God or five minutes with God. That could be a few minutes with your fiance and her kids. It could be, okay, I got to get that term paper written, or I've got this really important project for work. Not a good idea to stuff your green zone on a regular basis, but if you're in this season, you can use it to get those most important things done. I say a lot more about this in At Your Best. 
And uh, I've, I've also done a lot of coaching around it. So I'll just leave it there. But I would really, really focus on your best three to five hours and do your most important things there. Even on a rotating basis, if you can't touch each every day, just say, okay, Mondays, I'm going to work on school. Tuesdays, I'm going to work on my job. Wednesdays, I'm going to work on relationships. Thursdays, I'm going to spend some extra time with God. And then you raised it a couple times. And this is my fifth point. Um, you've got to set your expectations for your time with God according to seasons as well. So when my kids were young and it was crazy like it was in your life, my time with God was five to 10 minutes. Now, you know, you could argue, well, you should be a monk and live in the desert and spend an hour a day or 10 hours a day. It was a busy season. Five to 10 minutes was better than zero minutes. Now I'm in a different season. My time in the morning is closer to an hour, but I have that kind of rhythm in my life. So what I would do is, uh, and you can multitask. I mean, you can pray while you're in the car or listen to an audio translation of the Bible while you're in your car or whatever. But I would try to find five to 10 minutes at your optimal time where you can just pause and start uh, that time with God. And I think you can probably carve that out. Listen, it's a complicated season. I hope that helps. If you've got a question about productivity, leave it for me. I would love to take your question. And you can do that over at kerryneuhoff.com slash podcast. In the meantime, if you haven't yet picked up my brand new book, At Your Best, I would love for you to do that. We are so excited. It's been number one in its categories for a long time. It's been endorsed by Seth Godin, Adam Grant, Patrick Lencioni, Cal Newport, Greg McEwen, Nona Jones, Annie F. Downs, Craig Rochelle, Andy Stanley, and so many others. Uh, you can still, if you're listening to this in real time, get a few bonuses, including the video masterclass at atyourbesttoday.com. That goes away very, very soon. I'd love to see you break out of the stress spiral so many leaders find themselves in. Inside the book, you'll find some deep productivity, the strategies that I've used over the last 15 years and coached thousands of leaders on to help them live in a way today that helps them thrive tomorrow. So thank you so much for listening, everybody. Thanks for making this a great launch season. We're back with a fresh episode next week. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.